welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So today joining me we have Jonathan Hansen. Jonathan is a consultant in sports and exercise medicine with a specialist interest in emergency medicine. He's currently the team doctor for the Glasgow Warriors. He's the sports doctor for the Sports Scotland Institute, which look after the Olympic and Commonwealth athletes across Scotland. He's chair for the Scottish Government Concussion Advisory Group. Involved with developing a programme called Scrum Caps, which is a sports pre-hospital emergency care course. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on to chat to us. Thank you very much. We need to pick your brains about head injuries because it's something that we all see and I'm very aware that it's never really anything that's taught beyond the kind of the big bad stuff. Absolutely. I've asked this question a few times with audiences and population of uh, medical professionals, you know, hands up who's ever had any undergraduate or postgraduate training in the management of concussion. Uh, and usually, you know, it's practically zero people put their put their hands up because the way our medical profession has been weighted and the way emergency and critical care specialties have all been weighted is we're looking for the extradural, we're looking for the subdural. Um, it's almost been a relief that, oh, it, it's okay, it's just a concussion. But actually, concussion is a problem that has significant morbidity, both in the short, medium and potentially in the long term as well. We are learning more and more about concussion in terms of our understanding of the pathology and in the potential implications, particularly over the last sort of 15 and 20 years. And there is a global movement now of an, an expert group, if you like, the Sports Concussion Group, who do provide updated evidence-based guidance around the diagnosis and management of concussion every four years the the last document they produced was called the berlin 2016 consensus obviously produced in berlin and, and that was a consensus document by experts all around the world from sporting bodies neurologists sports physicians fifa world rugby and the nfl etc who came together and, and tried to get some common ground on our understanding of concussion and management of concussion yet Apart from perhaps in sport and exercise medicine, none of that has ever managed to filter down to day-to-day -day medical practice. And yet, who sees head injuries? You know, it's people who attend sports events in the community, so physios, paramedics who decide, make a decision somebody does or doesn't need more care. It's emergency departments who see a lot of minor traumatic head injury. And sometimes it's orthopedic surgeons or even general surgeons who end up being the designated place where some of these people get admitted for observation. Yet none of those sort of specialties would be familiar or have part of their curriculum, any of the global consensus documents. Absolutely. I mean, I think for basic responders, as you say, they're either going to be people who have volunteered or are present at sports events when somebody takes a knock to the head, or in the kind of worst case scenario, it's going to be... You know, a kid who gets knocked down and doesn't get up and it then comes through as a 999 call. Perhaps if we deal with the serious head injuries first, what are the red flags that you're looking for in terms of 
severe brain injuries and the, the big bad bleeds within the brain. I suppose the first thing to say is that any sporting head injury has got the potential to be an extradural or a subdural, etc. So that outlook that modern medicine has, I'm, I'm definitely not being critical of it, that is correct. So it would be managed in the same sort of principles of ABC care with C-spine protection. Things that were maybe concerned would be prolonged loss of consciousness, vomiting in adults, perhaps more than two episodes of vomiting, signs of a base of skull fracture. Obviously, when you're dealing with things at time zero in a sporting setting, you don't usually have time for bruising to develop behind the ears, so you wouldn't see things like that. You wouldn't necessarily see raccoon eyes or things like that, but you might see otorhinorrhea or something like that, clear fluid coming from the, the nose. So it can be very difficult in the early early stages, and it would be really important to, you know, to treat concussion as if it could be more structural damage than concussion there are some obvious red flags so seizure activity would be would be a concern or any focal neurology where somebody couldn't use part of their body or had some weakness in a limb they would be the sort of red flags and in my experience in team sport that's extremely rare the the commonest situation that you're going to find will be either someone's a bit dazed a bit confused or a transient loss of consciousness. And that transient loss of consciousness, in my experience, is seconds. So unless you're actually at the pitch side and see it happen, you would probably hear about it when they report it to you afterwards. Obviously, there's things like a dangerous mechanism as well, fall from heights, or if you're talking about motorsport, being ejected from vehicles. But I'm sort of talking more about sport-related concussion in terms of field sports or team sports. Just before we dive into looking at these guys who have this kind of transient phase and are maybe just a little bit dazed, not quite with it afterwards. Can you just unpick what's meant by the term concussion? Because it's something that everybody bands around as a term, but I'm never entirely certain that I've nailed down in my head what it is we're talking about. Yeah, if you look at the output from the the Berlin consensus document, concussion's got a very long official definition. But actually, to keep it really simple, concussion is a brain injury. And using that terminology is useful i think for getting the message across to patients parents and medics that it's not just concussion it's still a type of brain injury it used to be that we would say concussion is a functional injury in that you know somebody would not feel well for a few hours maybe a couple of days but then they would notice a problem with memory processing or balance that's kind of been dispelled a bit now with advances in technology and imaging. We know that there is structural damage to the brain in the concussion, but it's on a axonal level, a microscopic level. And that damage, usually through a shearing or rotational force to the brain, you know, the brain is just a jelly in a rigid box. So any twisting rotational moment can cause shearing around the axons. That results in a metabolic upset. So the way the cells process the various substrates they need. The functional deficit that we see is the endpoint of the metabolic upset in response to the trauma. All conventional hospital-based CT scans and conventional MRI will be normal in the context of concussion, unless there's an associated bleed. But there are some specialist types of MRI scan that can pick up some changes of concussion, but they wouldn't be the sort of imaging that 
when you get a casualty coming into a hospital, they would get as a first investigation. That would be a, you know, a, a cold outpatient neurology type investigation, and perhaps even research-wise. So, let's take a scenario where a basics responder is called to a rugby pitch. Somebody has been knocked out, and by the time they get there, the the patient is sat up and and talking to them. What sort of things are you looking for in that initial conversation? Same as anything, you know, you would do with any casualty. Just the fact that they're on a rugby pitch doesn't really make things any different. You know, you'd walk up and you'd be assessing the the scene and obviously make sure the game's stopped so that you're not going to get mowed down. Airway, breathing, circulation. Is there a risk from the mechanism that they may have injured their neck? If they're already walking and ambulatory, you may continue to manage them that way. Or if they tell you that they've actually come down from a line out and been spear driven into the ground and have neck pain you may behave differently about that and may want them to sit down and take control of the neck depending on how concerned you are once you've done that you would ask exactly what happened and they may give you a history of a sports related incident a body contact they will tell you what they felt typically that may involve a transient loss of consciousness but we must remember that only 10 percent of concussions actually involve loss of consciousness So we shouldn't be reassured by the fact that they don't describe that. And they may describe a whole host of symptoms from headache, confusion, poor memory, not feeling quite right, very nonspecific stuff, right down to balance or vomiting. There are some symptom checkers that you can use as part of the output from the Berlin Consensus document. There are concussion recognition tools which are not to be used as a, yes, you have concussion, no, you don't have concussion, because concussion is a a complex diagnosis that can take up to two or three days to truly present itself, but it can give the rescuer responding to someone a list of things to ask, just, you know, as a rule in rather than a rule out, so that you can ask the sort of symptoms that, that might present during your initial chat with this patient, if you're getting those kind of grumbling concerns, there's nothing that's jumping out at you that's making you think this patient's big sick, but there's definitely something amiss. Where in your head is going to be the dividing line between patients that you're taking to an emergency department and patients that you're withdrawing from the game, but not necessarily transporting? Yeah. So again, for that particular decision of should they go to hospital, you would be looking at the existing sign head injury guideline about which patients with head injury need to go into hospital. And that would depend upon what's their GCS. Had they had a seizure? Do they have any focal neurology? They would be the hard objective measures, but there would be the subjective measures of, I'm just not quite happy. I'm not happy. This patient's very confused or you know, it's taken me 15 minutes to get here. We're now 40 minutes and they've been sick three times. So there would be the hard and soft measures that might make you make a decision. The the way this usually pans out with a sporting head injury is the player is in a bit of a warrior mode and wants to go back on. I'm fine. I'm fine. I've got a bit of a head. Oh, they might not admit they've got a headache. I just felt a bit wobbly. I want to go back on. The coach will be in the moment and will be saying, he's fine. He's fine. You may even get a well-meaning person who, has some level of first aid training, who's waving a finger in front of the face, saying he's fine, saying it without really being able to find any hard objective measures, saying that he's fine and they want to put them back in the game. 
the key thing that must happen there is if there is any suspicion of concussion at all, they should be removed and not returned to play that day. Even if ultimately nothing else happens, no other symptoms develop and they are reviewed by someone at a later date, whether that's someone involved in the club, taken to the GP or do end up going to hospital and be told that there isn't a diagnosis of concussion. Initially, it's so difficult to make that decision. Just the fact that you've been called means there's enough suspicion of concussion that they should be removed. And that's why the motto of the Scottish Government concussion campaign is, if in doubt, sit them out. Concussion has a host of short, medium and long-term potential risks. And from an athlete perspective, from a player perspective, you can get them on side of, if your brain's not working properly, you're not going to be an effective decision maker. You're not going to add anything to this game. You're not going to support your teammates. You should come off. For the coaches and for the players and parents as well, if your brain's not able to process information and function properly, your proprioception, obviously not a term you would use to patients, but for this podcast, your proprioception and your biomechanics are not going to be as good. And there's clear evidence that if you play on with a concussion, you're more likely to pick up a significant musculoskeletal injury. So what may be a one-week absence from, or a three-week absence or whatever from a, a concern about a head injury, depending on what age you are, yeah, if, if you rupture your ACL and you're actually a plasterer or you have a physical job that involves lots of going up and down ladders, you've done yourself no favours there at all. That's going to be a year of your life um, where you're going to have significant financial morbidity. So that's probably the most important decision to make, that if you've been called, even if you think everything's all right, you probably want to be taking people out. There is a serious complication of concussion, which we've not talked about yet, which probably crosses over a bit to what we're saying about the serious head injury. There is this condition called second impact syndrome. And second impact syndrome is very rare, but it does exist. And it's controversial, but the controversy is not so much does it exist. It's more, is it the second impact that causes the problem? Or is it the first impact or the third impact? And the way second impact syndrome works is the first head injury that you get causes a, a concussive brain injury, upsets the autoregulation of the brain, the ability of the brain to control its own blood pressure and cerebral perfusion pressure. If you then get a subsequent blow close to the other one, and by close, I mean on a time scale of minutes, hours to even days, that autoregulation system can fall apart. And in a small number of people, but it does happen, these people get a complete collapse of all ability to control their cerebral perfusion pressure, get massive cerebral edema and die. Now, that sounds dramatic, and it is rare, but obviously, if you're talking about teenagers and young adults playing sport, to get an outcome like that through not being conservative, um, when we know it can occasionally happen, that would be sort of the strongest point I could put across about why, if in doubt, sit them out is really important and why we should be really conservative about head injury in sport. Absolutely. And as you say, for the sake of probably a small fraction of the game that's left, the risk is not really worth taking. In terms of once you've pulled the player off the pitch, what's your advice to the player specifically and then to those who are potentially going to be looking after them? Yeah, so if, I know we're talking about a pre-hospital setting now, but if we're in a hospital setting, these people would be reviewed Part of the treatment would be time. 
to see what happened and they would be given written advice to go away with. In the pre-hospital setting, really that shouldn't be that different. If you have somebody who's clearly unwell in that they are confused or vomiting a lot or just generally look pale and look awful, then they should have a period of observation at scene. How long that observation is and where it should take place is very variable because it's a pre-hospital setting. So it could be in a vehicle, it could be in a parent's vehicle, it could be in a building inside, but there should always be a responsible adult with them. Then, of course, you've got the decision of, well, how long is too long? And I think within the realms of how much time you have, if you're sort of getting to 30 minutes or so, and this is just my opinion, really, that's not part of any guideline, but if you're getting to that sort of time scale and they're not looking a bit better and you're still concerned about them, then they're the sort of ones you want to think about. They should go to hospital. How that is, I think they can probably go with a responsible adult if you haven't got a means to get them there yourself safely. And if you do decide that actually they don't need to go to hospital, then we should give them some form of advice. We're quite lucky in Scotland that we do have the Scottish government behind us and jointly through Sport Scotland, we have a single policy for all sport in Scotland um, with a, a guideline which is available for anybody on the internet, the, the Sport Scotland concussion advice, which people can be signposted to to find the advice over the next sort of week to 10 days that they need to follow. That advice is, there's two streams depending on how old you are. And in the under 19 group, partly because the younger you are, larger head to body size, perhaps less neck strength, um, younger people and females get more significant concussions that last for longer. And obviously a developing brain is a bit more at risk. So the timescales that we put on the under 19 group for a full return to play would be 23 days. The timescale for an adult or 19 and over would be 12 days. Now, in the old days, it used to be, oh, well, just take some rest. Rest's good for concussion. It is to a degree because you want people to be over their symptoms. But actually, I always use the analogy, it's just like a hamstring injury. If you tear your hamstring, you don't rest for a month and then suddenly expect to run a marathon. Equally, you don't try and run a marathon the next day. So the focus of the management of concussion has moved away from being absolute rest, no screen time. We've moved away from that a bit now to focusing on a little bit of rest just to get over the initial symptoms, perhaps a day or so, and then looking for grassroots sport, a return to normal life phase where you try and get back to work, school work, university work, job work, day by day, doing a little bit more each day over that first week while you're doing physical rest. And then once you're back to work, you can start thinking about getting back to sport. And again, that's in a very graduated way by what's called the graduated return to sport, which it's very simple logic, really. You would start by doing a little bit of exercise, perhaps 20 minutes on an exercise bike, 20-minute jog the next day. And so long as you're not getting any symptoms, you're working your way back up to, to sport. So the written advice you can give would be to signpost them, in Scotland at least, to the Sports Scotland concussion advice. Other than that, it's the usual things that you would say to any head injury of 
if you've got symptoms, don't drive. Have an adult with you for the first 24 hours. Don't drink a lot of alcohol. Don't let your wife give you a new will to sign, something like that. Um, anything important, don't make any big decisions until you're feeling back to normal. <laughs> Excellent. The last kind of question I think that certainly crops up in my mind is you often get asked advice and it's the most dangerous type of advice that somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you know, so-and-so got banged on the head and he's just not quite been right since and it's now a couple of weeks down the line. Who should we be thinking about trying to ensure is referred following a concussion type head injury? Yes, it's really difficult and it's really difficult because we're still behind the game a bit as a profession with concussion management. We don't have the systems and pathways for specialist referral. We have generalist referral through general practice or through emergency departments, but trying to get people rapidly into the services they might need for brain rehab is very difficult. There are a couple of things to say about that. Touched on this earlier, when we're coming through as undergraduates, everybody gets told when you're doing obstetrics and gynecology, learn how to take an obstetric history. When you do paediatrics, learn how to take a child development history, psychiatry, psychiatric history. But actually, the biggest thing that's going to modify a standard plan for concussion, and especially in athletic people who've probably banged their head before, is take a good concussion history. If you've had three concussions in the last three, four months, then that's not normal. And you would not be having conventional advice straight away. If somebody gave me a big concussion history and I was seeing them pitch side for a concussion, I'd be advising they go and see their GP. I even give them a letter saying this just chap's got a significant concussion history. I think he should be referred to a neurologist. Currently, the pathways are no harder than that for getting those people in. But that's probably the, the best we can do just on the frequency and number of concussions that he's had in case you know, his, his susceptibility has been lowered by not having adequate recovery between events. For the ones who aren't right a couple of weeks down the line, there are some definitions. Which it used to be called post-concussion syndrome, but now, of course, it's changed to um, persistent concussion symptoms. And in an adult, you would expect to be asymptomatic it within 14 days and with a child you would be expected to be asymptomatic at 28 days so unless you were spotting any red flags and you were still within those time scales it's probably okay obviously it depends what it is if somebody's got obvious signs of raising to cranial pressure then they get a headache when they stoop they're vomiting a lot they've got a bit of neck stiffness or something like that then that would be a red flag forget persistent concussion symptoms you think there's something going on structurally on a large scale inside the head so it is difficult and it's not easy currently we still only have general practitioners or emergency medicine to send these people to directly i'm aware that many basic responders work in primary care and we've had this conversation before that as a specialty they don't have any training in concussion management either and don't really know what to do with them and that's kind of the next phase of what we're hoping to do with the Scottish government project is to try and standardize the advice that we give in emergency departments so that the, the written advice people are going to get become standardized and equally make it easier for for gps to upskill themselves and get some pathways to know when to send and where to send people who are presenting we've had a good bit of traction with that actually nhs education for scotland did allow us to create a practice-based small group learning module on concussion for primary care which is available 
and in terms of the standardised emergency medicine paperwork and, and written handouts for sports concussion, Arkham Scotland have given us an audience and certainly supported it to date. There's a paediatric document come out of the Children's Hospital in Glasgow as well called the ACORN document about, you know, it's, it's all very well me talking to you about what a 14-year-old can do who spends most of his time gaming or with his pals or doing schoolwork. But, you know, how do you stop a, a nine-year-old from jumping on a trampoline? How do you find suitable activities for a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old? And the, the great work by the Children's Hospital there, the ACON um, document, is good at sort of giving you what's acceptable and what's not acceptable if you've got symptoms after a concussion. Fantastic, Jonathan. Now, the last thing is we've been asking all of our contributors to give us three top tips for, in this case, the management of people with concussion. And I'm just wondering what your suggestions would be for basics responders. Yes, I think the, the first one's an easy one. It's follow the if in doubt, sit them out idea. People should be removed from the field of play for suspected concussion, not for diagnosed concussion. Often when you make an assessment, you won't find anything and you'll be going on the mechanism and the history. But if you suspect concussion, they should be removed from the field of play and not play again that day. So number one, if in doubt, sit them out. Number two would be familiarise yourself with the Sports Scotland concussion advice. Easy to find through any search engine. Have a look at it, have a read over, just familiarise yourself with the principles and have access to that to pass on to people if you are ever asked to attend to somebody with a sporting head injury and you decide they don't need ongoing care on the day, please signpost them to the document. And then the third one is have a think about and have a read around how to take a concussion history. It's not that difficult. How many concussions have you had in the past? When was your last one? Have you had any prolonged ones that have taken more than the standard recovery? If you've got that ability to take a concussion history, you know, whether it's Saturday afternoon in the emergency department or whether it's in primary care or whether it's pre-hospital, if you've got that ability, it might point out a little red flag that actually we're treating more than just one concussion here. We've got to treat them all serially as one. And this player definitely needs firmer, more conservative advice. You just might be that one person that prevents a second impact syndrome if you've taken a good concussion history and given somebody more conservative advice. Jonathan, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing your Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. You know, there's a lot of discussion about concussion in the media just now and it's still a very embryonic topic. We know what we know, but there's a lot of things we don't know. And so it's really important that we're just conservative at this stage just so that we can make sure that everybody stays physically active and gets the massive health benefits of exercise and sport, which of course are physical and social. Absolutely. And we'll get links up to some of the documents that you've mentioned up with this podcast. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks very much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.